Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we got to talk about a topic that seems to loom over my head a lot these days, examinship. We spoke about this with Dr. Tony McLean, a colorectal surgeon at the University of Calgary and the new head of the Royal College Exam Committee for General Surgery. We talked about how to prepare for the exam, and we also drew upon Dr. McLean's experience as a program and fellowship director to get his advice on how to get the most out of residency. So, uh, Dr. McLean, thanks for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And um, in particular, we wanted to draw on your experience uh, having been on the Royal College Examining Committee for a long time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this role, what drew you to the role, and how do you think the exam has changed over the years that you've been a part of it? Sure. Um, So I uh, was asked to become part of the... uh, exam board for the Royal College uh, back in early 2006. At that time, um, all program directors uh, were automatically invited to become uh, uh, members of the exam board. And uh, and so I uh, joined. I thought, uh, number one, I thought it was um, good from a program perspective, program director perspective, uh, to have a good understanding of the exam process so that I was sure that uh, the curriculum that I was delivering for my residents uh, would uh, meet all the the needs of uh, that they would have in order to be successful at the exam. Um, and then, having been involved in that process for uh, for a few years, I was invited then to become part of the. Uh, Test committee, which is the group of surgeons who help put together the, the actual questions for the exam, put the exam together, and then through the course of that, I got to work with some uh, really great people and great mentors like Don Bowie and Brock Vare and Ward Davies, who then uh, uh, asked me to to continue that commitment uh, by becoming the vice chair with the view of becoming the chair, which I uh, assumed this past year after uh, Ward Davies completed his term. I think uh, from how things have changed over that time period, certainly from my own exam and then through uh, since my involvement with the exam board, uh, I think there's been a conscious effort to really try to ensure that um, We've increased the uh, amount of uh, clarity uh, with the questions that are uh, uh, delivered to the exam examinees, uh, both from the uh, from the multiple choice component as well as from the uh, oral component. And uh, we've also sought to uh, try to ensure that there's uh, very fair uh, delivery of this exam to the candidates. That's been something that's uh, 
been an evolution for uh, the last number of years and continues to be an evolution. It's a challenge to try to provide questions that are both extremely clear with uh, one clear best answer, but also that aren't so easy that it's not worth <laughs> giving the exam at all. Um, and obviously, that's uh, a, a fine line to to balance, but I think we've been getting better at it, and I think uh, over time that's become a, a much uh, a much better uh, process. Um, Tony, one of the things that um, is, is clear is that oral exam ability or talent or examsmanship, whatever term you want to use, is is a, is a real skill. Like it's a it's a it's a true talent and. It's certainly, I think, underappreciated, even for those of us maybe that give lots of talks or can talk to the media or, or whatever. And you've known me for a long time since I was your resident. Uh, you know, we'll be doing well in an oral exam. Certainly, it wasn't intuitive to me anyway. Um, so it's clearly a skill. What, what sort of tips do you have for trainees really at any level, whether they're doing a oral college exam with you guys or whether they're doing maybe a fellowship examination? How should they prepare? How should they frame the exam in their mind? And, and what would you you tell them maybe at a thirty thousand foot level to 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 really think about and and, and uh, try and uh, try and do in terms of performance? Sure, that's a great question. I, I you know I think um, the most important thing uh, for any exam is is having that um, comprehensive uh, knowledge base that allows you to. Uh, to be able to answer the questions effectively. Uh, but the knowledge base itself, as you indicate, doesn't necessarily translate into an effective answer on a on an oral exam question. And I think that boils down to a few things. I think uh, from an advice standpoint, uh, I think the best advice I could give would be uh, to practice. And that's, that means to take every opportunity to um, do oral exams right from your very first year of training as a trainee and uh, to have that become sort of a, a standard part of the way you think um, and to treat each of those exams like they were uh, the real thing, really, uh, to be uh, hyper-focused on what the actual question being asked is, to maintain um, a sense of organization in answering the question and to answer the question completely, but not to uh, to continue the answer beyond what the question that was asked uh, is. Uh, there'd be lots of opportunity to have follow-up questions in any oral exam, whether it's uh, a practice one at the end of a rotation in your home institution or whether it's at the Royal College. And so uh, I think... Um, being clear what the question is in your own mind and providing a uh, clear, complete, but relatively succinct answer to the question itself uh, is probably key. Um, I think we, we've all we've all seen this in friends or colleagues, and you've probably seen it uh, on the the day of, of these examinations for sure. But you know, every once in a while, somebody will will have trouble regrouping after a difficult question or. A difficult performance in the question, whether they have the content knowledge or not. Um, how does how do examiners in general view that scenario? And then, what advice would you give the 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 candidate in terms of you know calming themselves and refocusing their their ability going forward within the exam itself? So that's another great question. I, you know, uh, the examiners uh, are a very 
great group of people. They're volunteers and uh, they want a good process. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, they want the candidates uh, to pass when they should pass. And uh, there's there are no examiners that are hoping that candidate will do poorly and fail. That's that's disappointing for us when we see that. Um, uh, we do see people struggle, and I think the best preparation for that struggle is to struggle in practice and to uh, force yourself to follow up a difficult question uh, in practice with another question immediately uh, that uh, gives you that practice to settle yourself down, to refocus, and to do it again. I think if you haven't done that in the lead-up to the exam, that might you know, give you the difficulty during the exam process itself. And so the more you've been through that and had to force yourself to reset your focus and uh, to forget about the question that just happened, I think the more effectively you can do that, the better you're going to do. You know, and it's important to remember that no one question on an exam of any kind will sink a candidate. You know, this is a, a cumulative score, and most people are actually probably doing better than they believe they are. That's uh, our inherent nature, I think, is to, for most of us, is to judge ourselves uh, more harshly than, than the observers or the examiners that are uh, evaluating us. And so I think that's another important uh, thing to keep in mind. Going in a slightly different direction away from the exam, you were a general surgery program director here in Calgary for a few years, or for quite a number of years. What do you? What advice would you give current residents about their training, and particularly considering the fact that it seems like there's just going to be more uh, restrictions and limitations on the number of hours that trainees can put into the hospital? How do you think that we're going to reconcile the two, and how do, how can we get the most out of our training? So that, that's a great question. I think that's a, that's a moving target, and I think you'll get a lot of difference of opinion about what the right answer is there. Uh, from my perspective, I felt this way when I was a trainee, and I got this advice from mentors uh, of my own. And uh, I think that um, five years, uh, though it might seem like a long time, is really a short period of time to... Uh, uh, gain the knowledge necessary to be an effective practitioner as well as gaining the, the technical skills required to to effectively uh, carry out our job. Um, and I think what we do is such important uh, thing. I would urge people to, from day one, uh, really devote themselves to uh, the time necessary to acquire the, both the technical skills and the knowledge to uh, to perform at your best. I think one pitfall that I see not infrequently these days is with the advent of skills labs, people feel that that's the venue that they're going to pick up their uh, technical skills at and the volume of work done outside of that uh, for at least some of our trainees has, uh, has gone down significantly. Um, some of us trained in the era prior to skills labs and we basically turned our apartments into a mini skills lab and uh, I can still remember tying literally thousands of knots, uh, sewing my furniture, sewing pretty well everything in the in the apartment for the first couple of years of training. So I was given advice, which I think still holds very true today, that um, You've got to be able to effectively carry out the technical steps um, 
appropriate to your level of training when asked to do so. And if you're able to do the things when you're asked to do so, you're generally given more opportunity to do both that task as well as additional more advanced things. Whereas if you struggle with being able to do things like uh, sewing or tying knots, uh, the likelihood is, is that the faculty or the senior trainee that's with you will assume that you're not ready for uh, the task at hand and uh, will simply take over. will be less likely to to uh, get you to do it the next time. Well, that's great advice, Tony. Um, if we continue on this path in terms of your experience and your thoughts as a, as a long-term fellowship uh, um, director, I should say, a long-term residency director, and then uh, um, also involved heavily, obviously, in the, in the colorectal uh, fellowship world. Um, one of the questions I think that all of us get routinely is how to best prepare yourself at the resident level for applying to a fellowship and then securing it. What are your thoughts about that in general? What advice would you give the, the residents moving through that that uh, that sort of scenario? And, and then um, is there anything specific to colorectal surgery in particular, I guess, at the end? Sure. I mean, I think uh, I think this holds true whether you're going to do a fellowship or you're going to go out into practice. I'd sort of view your training as a five-year job interview, and you certainly want to uh, be conveying the right attitude. Somebody who's got a good work ethic, somebody who takes responsibility, somebody who is honest, hardworking, and and takes good care of their patients. Um, as far as Deciding on a fellowship and securing a fellowship, uh, I think the most important thing is finding what really uh, you enjoy doing. Uh, and that can be difficult, especially when you like most of the things that you uh, you, you expose yourself to in uh, general surgery. I think uh, when I was going through my training, I liked most of the subspecialties, and there were certain things that... I liked less about some that uh, helped tip the balance for me about what I wanted to end up doing. And that's partly the work and partly uh, the mentors that I was exposed to in training. I think as far as uh, setting yourself up, uh, I think um, if you have those traits of being a hard worker and uh, really being committed to the job, the, the uh, mentors that you have in training will uh, recognize those traits and will be uh, supportive of you and supportive of your applications uh, to uh, fellowships. Things that you can do on top of that, obviously, are uh, trying to be involved in research and getting some research uh, done and getting some publication under your belt. I think that, again, shows another level of dedication to the field and uh, dedication to potentially becoming an academic surgeon that uh, can certainly in many fellowships be a more attractive uh, a base for the candidates that uh, that the uh, programs are looking at, uh, and certainly can help tip the balance in a competitive uh, year when there's uh, multiple candidates applying for a few spots. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm you know you, you sort of said that in a very eloquent way. I'm probably more blunt about it when I'm asked. I say. You know, you can you can probably secure a fellowship through either having worked you know really hard and 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 having that social and and uh, and career credit with your mentors that are maybe connected to the places you want to go, or alternatively, you have a CV with very little fluff that's a phone book that, that they simply can't ignore and have to invite you for an interview. So I, I agree totally. What what do you what do you recommend or what do you do if you're if you're the resident who say wants to do HPB training and you think that's 
that's your story out of the gate. And then maybe you're close to fourth year and you think, oh my God, my colorectal rotation was the best. I, I want to do colorectal now. So sort of a, a, a late um, applicant to, the, to that field. How, how do you think the applicant should deal with that and how would they frame it in, in interviews if they eventually get some? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that that does happen occasionally. The most important thing is is being honest with people. I think you know, uh, if you've done the other things, if you've been a hard worker, people are supportive of you, and you've done research. The research will likely have been in, in the other specialty, in the HPV, in the case that you're uh, bringing up. But uh, I think that still speaks uh, for the candidate and their dedication. And I think you know if people make a wholesale change. Uh, there's always going to be people that are skeptical of that and unsure whether they've truly changed or they're just looking to have a backup to what they really want to do. But um, again, if you're able to arrange last-minute changes to electives, if you still have some left in your training, that that's often uh, an extremely important component uh, to demonstrating that uh, interest in the field. And then again, liaising with your mentors, telling them the truth, telling them where you were, what you were thinking, and how that's evolved, and uh, what you're thinking now. And they can often make some phone calls for on your behalf that, that can sometimes tip the balance and allow you to get your foot in the door to get an interview and, and uh, put your best foot forward. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you to tell, tell us a little bit about your career, where you grew up, where you did residency, and and fellowship because I know that that is your your journey has been very uh, interesting even down to going to Australia for a few months in residency can you tell us a little a little bit about that sure so uh, yeah I grew up in uh, a small city called Moncton New Brunswick um, went to uh, university in Halifax and then uh, stayed there to do my medical school and uh, general surgery residency uh, in general surgery, uh, I actually very much enjoyed uh, the vast majority of uh, the subspecialties that I uh, explored, and uh, so I went through uh, several different iterations of what I thought I might want to do. Ultimately, my initial plan was that I would try to do something that would allow me to get back to my hometown to work at my uh, local hospital. Uh, when I was in... Uh, uh, early fourth year, I uh, had the opportunity to work with uh, Will Henderson and uh, Bernie McIntyre, who are uh, phenomenal uh, colorectal surgeons, both of whom are now retired, but uh, they were amazing surgeons and uh, really uh, uh, stoked my interest in, uh, in the colorectal uh, specialty. When I uh, expressed that interest, uh, Dr. McIntyre offered to help helped me uh, arrange for an elective. He happened to be a co-resident uh, in the, the Mayo Clinic during his fellowship training with uh, a surgeon from uh, New Zealand. And so uh, he contacted her and she was uh, kind enough to uh, invite me uh, for a, 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 an elective there. Uh, Dr. Eva Uhaus was her name. And uh, I spent uh, some more time there uh, focused predominantly on uh, colorectal surgery and that uh, helped solidify uh, my interest in the field and then uh, completed my training. I was at the uh, first year of direct uh, entry into uh, surgical residencies rather than a rotating internship. My, I was on the last year of the rotating internship and so uh, 
at the end of my training, there was a, a slight uh, uh, change in things that we were allowed radar exams a year early. So I did that, but then uh, completed an additional six months of training in order to be eligible to write my American board exams uh, in addition to the Canadian exams. Uh, so I got both of those. I went into practice in general surgery for the remainder of that year, covering a locum uh, in the practice of uh, a surgeon in Dartmouth who unfortunately had uh, died that year. And then I went off uh, to do my fellowship training in Toronto. Uh, some amazing uh, mentors, including uh, Robin McLeod, uh, Helen McRae, Zane Cohn, and uh, Marcus Bernstein. And I think it was really most of my time with uh, Dr. Robin McLeod that allowed me uh, to see the uh, benefits of working in a more academic center and really stoked my interest in having a more academic career. Mostly through her uh, mentorship, I was able to uh, be successful in uh, my fellowship and in securing my job here in Calgary, where I've been uh, since I completed my training. I must say I've been extremely fortunate. The people that I've uh, taught me through the years and that have... Uh, advocated for me and allowed me to, to become successful. You've talked a lot about um, how much you actually enjoyed working in Dartmouth as a community surgeon. Can you, can you talk a little bit about sort of pros and cons and what you like about being an academic colorectal surgeon? Sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to know how how true some of these things were uh you got to keep in mind uh from my perspective i'd gone from working in a fairly unregulated environment uh fairly massive number of hours a week to uh uh working in a hospital where um uh both the family physicians working in that hospital and the nursing staff bent over backwards to try to uh protect us uh, as faculty there uh, from any nighttime calls or work. Uh, and so it was sort of an amazing transformation from being working uh, frequently all night long to um, working all day and into the evening, but rarely getting uh, interrupted at night. Uh, so uh went from being chronically tired to... Uh, uh, very well rested. Um, I went from making very little money to making very good money and uh, went from at least uh, my perception at the time was being not treated super well by nursing staff in an academic center to being treated uh, extremely well by nursing staff in a, in a community community uh, a small community hospital and so a lot of those things made me uh, wonder whether I should uh, go off and do additional training or just stay there and enjoy that uh, wonderful life uh, that uh, was seemingly happening in, those, uh, in that short period of time that I was there. Um, I think uh, some of the things that uh, again mentors helped me uh, sort of uh, see was that uh, uh, for the most part, if you're going to do subspecialty training and try to work in an academic center, you're, for the most part, going to have to do that out of the gate. It's rare and difficult to uh, do that later in your career, although there are some examples of people who have done that uh, successfully. It's certainly uh, much less common. I think uh, the other thing that um, 
uh, I noticed was that uh, in some community centers that I'd uh, worked in as a resident, um, the faculty saw their work as um, something uh, more like a, a regular job and not uh, didn't seem to have the same kind of passion for the uh, for the profession that I uh, did see in some of my mentors uh, in academic uh, uh, centers. And uh, I certainly was concerned that uh, that could be my fate if I, uh, if I, uh, I did follow that same path. And so uh, I very much wanted to be in a situation where I continued to have uh, passion for what I did and enjoyed my, uh, my career uh, throughout its uh, course and, you know, uh, training residents and uh, secondary residents and students does have its challenges, but it has massive rewards. We get to work with some pretty phenomenal people. We get to watch them develop from novices into uh, uh, outstanding surgeons and outstanding uh, people. And uh, I think that's uh, a huge part of the enjoyment I've had in uh, in my career so far. Tony, I think the last question we, we want to ask you, you know, you've you've touched on and highlighted um, really what's I think from the outside looks like a pretty amazing career so far, and I I, I don't say that as as if you're almost done. Goodness, I hope you're not. I think you have lots lots to go. But um, you know, if you if you think about the the environments you've been in, if you think about your 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 amazing clinical voyage and your expertise, as well as some of these roles, whether it's been the in the involvement in the fellowship, whether it's been the Royal College exam, whether it's been residency program director and now section head of general surgery in Calgary. Um, if you put all that together, what are the one or two or three pieces of advice you, you maybe wish you had known earlier on or or that you would uh, throw out there for folks? Really at any level. Um, you know, I think that's a difficult question for me. I, I think um what I think you're getting at is, is um, you know, how do you decide what it is that you want to do? And I think, to me, that boils down to, to doing the things that you think you're going to enjoy. Um, and certainly, I wouldn't say that every part of everything I've done I've enjoyed. There's certainly been some things that uh, have been challenges, but by and large, most of the big things that I've uh, taken on uh, – I've really got some enjoyment out of it. Um, I think uh, from a program director standpoint, um, you know, I, I, you really bond, I developed some great uh, friendships and bonds with the uh, with the residents that are training at that time, and those last for their year and their entire career. And there are people that uh, when you see them at meetings and uh, and other social events. Uh, you know, they, uh, I think, immediately seek you out and uh, want to say hi and uh, reconnect. Um, you know, and I think uh, that's a phenomenal opportunity for people who are who have that interest. It also sets you up uh, to meet a, a bunch of other uh, pretty awesome people across the country who are uh, doing the same uh, job at the other uh, uh, institutions. And... Uh, it really builds a good network from that perspective. Um, from the Royal College perspective, uh, again, an amazing group of people who uh, volunteer their time to help make that process successful and uh, really uh, uh, amazing uh, 
group of people that you learn from and uh, you often build long-lasting relationships again that uh, that carry forward in other realms of the profession and in social circles as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's probably the most important thing to me is finding the things that uh, that you're interested in, that you uh, truly want to do and uh, do them to the best of your ability. And um, I think people appreciate it. And, uh, and I think you get real satisfaction out of that. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.